Uh, go to Genesis chapter three. We'll start there. We're going to end up in Ephesians pretty quick. It's been a while since I got to share with you guys. God bless. I've been zipping around the country a bit. Went down to see my dad in California. I'll share a little bit about that in a minute. But uh, in Genesis chapter three, we're very familiar with this unfortunate event. The fall of man, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And we all know that's not what God said. I mean, this is a very familiar ground for us. We, we have been blessed to understand pretty clearly what's going on here, how the, the, the devil, you know, changes the word, adds to the word, takes from the word, impugns the character of God and then outright lies. And poor Eve gets seduced. But meanwhile, Adam is standing close by just hook, line and sinker on this thing. There's a wonderful book, by the way, that I've been reading called The Silence of Adam. Uh, uh, it's it's pretty remarkable book. If you ever get an opportunity to read it, gentlemen. And he said, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the trees of the fruit of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And we know the inaccuracies there. That's not what God said. You know, God said you can freely eat. Didn't say anything about not touching it. So the serpent knows he's got her. So he's, he outright lies and says, blatant lie here. You surely will not die. But then he gets a little bit more subtle here because... You know, he was the most subtle, the crafty, manipulative. Uh, we all know people like this, you know, ones that have got a hidden agenda and they'll, they'll just kind of try and guide you into their will, get you under their thumb. You will not surely die for God knows, verse five, that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Ooh, look at all the benefits here. And you will be like God. Oh, yeah, isn't that awesome? Knowing good and evil. Now, first, first thought that comes to mind was, well, who was it who wanted to be like God, wanted to be above God, who had that agenda? It was Satan, right? The enemy. That was what got him in all the trouble in the first place, that he would dare usurp God. So, you know, he's trying to get Eve on his team with that. Your eyes will be opened and you will know good from evil. And this, this is a subtle lie. You know, certainly something changed. But the idea that somehow man in and of himself intrinsically knows good from evil has been passed down from generation to generation. It's something that we kind of carry with us somehow. We're the ultimate judge of what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong in our lives. You know, that we have this infallible conscience. Follow your gut, right? Follow your gut. Um, if it feels good. I'll go for it. You do you, boo-boo, YOLO, all that stuff in our culture today that is leading people down such disastrous paths that will lead ultimately to sin and death. You know, man's heart, Jeremiah says in verse 17, it's the most deceptive of all things. Let me read this to you right here. Verse 9 and 10 of Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Heart is deceitful. You know, and I've seen good men of God, mature men of God, so convinced 
that what they're doing is the right thing. And yet, ultimately, it ends in disaster because they're not obeying what the word says. You know, Paul went to Jerusalem, right? And uh, how, how many people tried to tell him, don't go to Jerusalem? How many witnesses did he have that he should not go to Jerusalem? But he was convinced this is what God wanted from him, from him. I mean, it was the desire of his heart. And this is a great man of God. And yet he ends up going to Jerusalem. It's a great lesson right there. You know, don't rest on your laurels. Don't think that somehow you are so mature, so advanced in the word that you are beyond the counsel of good men and women who surround you. What is Psalms or is it Proverbs that says there's great safety in many counselors? You know, this idea of a conscience that let your conscience be your guide. You know, the conscience is a, is this, you know, this internal voice, you know, the little angel over here and the little devil over here. Go for it, do it, do it, do it. No, no, you don't want to do that. That wouldn't be right. This whole thing. It's 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 not an intrinsic infallible deal. It's a malleable, changeable uh, internal dialogue that is very much dependent upon culture and upbringing and lifestyle and habits and because your heart can change and be malleable. And go to First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared their own conscience as with a branding iron conscience injured irreparably injured and we look around at our culture and we see this kind of going on before our very eyes right the old boundary stones are being moved so that the something that was completely unacceptable uh to the point where it was almost an impossibility 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, today is commonplace. And we can consider it, uh, the, the culture considers you evil for daring to say, no, this is wrong. That's how malleable the, the conscience and the heart of man is. So what are we to do? What What is our guide? How are we to, you know, navigate through these ethical and moral issues of life? Well, thank God we have his word. Because the Word of God is our standard for truth. It is an, a, an objective, external standard of truth for us all. And if you come to me and you say to me, I want to do X, Y, Z for all these good intentions, and I've had revelation, and I've got God has opened doors, and this, that, and the other, and I look in the Word and I see that you are in contradiction to the Word of God, What's my answer going to be? Do the word. Do the word. I don't care how good it feels or how opportunistic it may seem. No matter what doors are open to you, do what the word says. Because the heart of man is deceitful above all else. You can get tricked just as easily as Paul did into sinning. So with that in mind, take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. I've had my head in Ephesians for the last six weeks, like every morning getting up and just reading Ephesians, and I've barely gotten out of chapter two. I, I'm, you, you read chapter one, and you read things about how we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. I mean, my imagination can run away with that for hours. All, um, all spiritual blessings? 
How about the idea that God has lavished upon us, lavished, what a great word, lavished upon us grace and mercy, uh, you know, wow, that we're filled with all the fullness of God, incredible. Came across this verse at the end of chapter one that says, um, let's start in chapter 20, it says, um, verse 19, I think, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, which is according to the working of his mighty strength that he worked in Christ when he raised him from among the dead and seated him in the at his right hand in the heavenly places far above every ruler and authority and power and those having dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in this the one to come and he put all things in subjection over his feet and appointed him as the head over all things for the church so that's us we're the church right which is his body again us the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. What does that mean? Oh my goodness. The fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. I mean, you go into a cave and meditate on that one for months, right? Unbelievable. And this this doctrine in Ephesians, this is the height of the doctrine to the church and is worthy of much contemplation and meditation. Now we move on to uh, verse chapter 2, and we read in verse 1, And you, you, good believer, the unheralded herald, he made alive when you were dead due to your transgressions and sins, in which you once walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, amongst whom we also all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest of humankind. We're going to languish here for a minute and just think about this. I mean, what a deplorable and terrible condition to be in. You know, when we think about this prince of the power of the air, we are talking about the embodiment of evil and cruelty and wickedness. And here we are in his clutches. Uh, I once heard somebody say, you know, it's not a question of are you possessed by the devil? It's a question of how much of you is possessed by the devil. And I thought that was quite a uh, profound statement. You know, how much influence of the world is is coming at us every day. Uh, you turn on the TV, you know, read the newspapers. Anybody read newspapers anymore? Check your Facebook feed. Just bombardments. How much of the influence of the world continues to reside within you? You know, your 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 upbringing, the culture that you were raised in. I uh, went down, like I said, I went down and visited my dad, who's 88 years old now, and, and 88's pretty old, y'all. And uh, kind of concerned for him. We keep him in your prayers because, you know, I'm not sure how safe he is because he's very independent, very prideful, stubborn. And, you know, I got to respect him. I don't want to, God forbid, you know, nursing home or any of that stuff. He's not going to hear any of that. But, you know, looking and hanging out with him and I'm seeing characteristics in him that are, that are in my life. Some of them not so good, you know, and uh, I'm realizing, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is stuff that. I've picked up from my parents, from my upbringing, and I would dare say that one of the reasons that we are in so much trouble in this country today is because of the destruction of the American family and the fact that 
like what 50 percent of children in this country are being raised in single parent homes and even the kids that are being raised in homes that have two parents what kind of lessons are they learning in those homes you know what kind of influences of the world are they picking up i mean look at what's going on you know look what parents are doing to their children these days what they're allowing their children to do it's very very concerning right Right. My dad picks me up. 88 years old. He picks me up. He's got a, a 2006 car with 204,000 miles on it. We're zipping down out of Oakland Airport down the 24 doing 75 miles an hour. And my dad, who's always been frugal, shall we say, turns to me <laughs> and he says, yeah, you had to buy new tires for the car. My dad's from Newcastle outside of uh, just below the Scottish English border. He says, uh, and uh, uh, I didn't want to spend $400 for new tires. So uh, I did some looking around and I, I got these ones. They're repurposed tires. I only paid 70 bucks for them. What do you think? And I'm like, I think I'm going to die. That's what I think. I'm tr- 75 miles an hour, 88 year old on retreads. <laughs> but um, these kind of things that I see, you know, from my parents that are in my life that, you know, and it, they're hard to shake. They're hard to get rid of. Right. Because they just they run so deep, you know, not all of them are sinful, but some of them, some of them are. So let's let's just read this this again, because I've left you guys hanging here long enough. Uh, It says, and and he and you and this he made alive actually in the Greek isn't in the text. John Shanai in his commentary says that they put it there because of our short attention span. But in actuality, it's not in the text. It's at the end of this sentence, and I'm going to read it like that because I think it gives a a dramatic punctuation to what's actually going on here. It says, And you, when you were dead due to your transgressions and sins, in which you once walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, among whom we also all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest of humankind. Help! Somebody rescue me! Verse 4, but God. Oh, man, thank God for that big but, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead due to our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. With Christ. Our union with Christ is what has rescued us out from the consequences of these sins and transgressions, from the consequences of living according to the world, and according to the authority of the adversary, obeying his authority. It's with our union with Christ that has delivered us from the consequences of following the passions of our flesh and of the mind. By grace, you have been saved, just in case you think somehow it's anything that you did. No, it's the union that we have in Christ, which is by God's grace. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And that's a future event that's being spoken of as if it's already happened. It's called the prophetic perfect. And when God wants to let you know that this is absolutely going to happen and nothing's going to stop it, he talks about it in past tense. It's a Hebraic 
figure of speech, and it's used a lot in the New Testament. You know, that's why you can read that you are going to be saved, you're being saved, and you are saved in the New Testament. And you say, well, which is it? Well, the certainty of it, it's going to happen. So God speaks about it in the past tense of as the you are saved. The being saved, that's talking about the working of, you know, the the working of your changing your mind and, and growing in Christ and maturing in Christ. And the are being saved is looking forward to the hope of Christ's return just to give you a quick uh, synopsis there of this idea. But the prophetic perfect, you'll see it all through Ephesians. We are seated in the heavenlies, past tense. Verse 7 says, So that in the ages to come, he could show the immeasurable riches of his grace by his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So just, just think a bit. What's coming our way? If we're talking about immeasurable riches of God's grace, how glorious is that going to be? Can your mind even begin to grab onto that? I mean, I have a tough time. You read the book of Revelation, and you see some of the stuff that goes on up in there. I I truly believe we're going to be a big part of that, you know? What's it going to be like to stand before the throne of God and sing His praises? What have we done that we could even possibly begin to earn deserving to do that? (laughs) Oh, wow. Just think about it. Just, you know, just get quiet, sit down and think about some of this stuff. Unbelievable. And yet, believe it, because it's the truth. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through trust. Have been saved. Even though you're hanging out in this earth suit, right, Marion? Even though the sins of the flesh still plague us, even though the desires, the passions of our flesh and our mind constantly tempt us, it says that we have been saved, past tense, through simple trust, simple trust. Somebody threw you a lifeline and all you did was reach out and grab there and then they pulled you in, pulled you out of the quagmire of the sea of sin and death into the glorious seating at the right hand of God in the body of Christ. Again, verse eight, for it is, uh, for it is, By grace you have been saved through trust, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Don't be boasting about this stuff. It's not like you did it. Jesus did it. It's Jesus Christ who is our Savior and who union with him gets us identified in his crucifixion, in his life, in his crucifixion, in his death in his resurrection, in his perfect walk of ministry. Him, him, him. He's the perfect one. Verse 10, for we are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus. His handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance so that we would walk in them. What are the good works that God has prepared for you? They're there. What is the ministry that you've been called to? Each one of us is unique and individual. We're each parts of the body, members in particular, right? There's something, something that God has prepared for you to do. And, and it, it might, you might not stand before 50,000 at a stadium preaching the gospel. It might be one or two. You might not, you know, be writing volumes of theological works. You might just send a, a, a quick note to somebody or write an email or post something on Facebook. You might not, you know, be the lead tenor in some incredible choir 
singing the praises of God. You might just be singing in tongues and interpreting at a fellowship of 11 people. But your lives have profound significance, quiet lives of profound significance. But that's who we are because of what God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. Remember what you've been rescued from and always, always keep the word of God first and foremost as your compass, as your director, as your conscience. And if in doubt, if ever in doubt, go to the word, go to prayer and go to your brothers and sisters, because there's much comfort, much safety and many counselors. So I think I'm going to leave it right there for you guys. I highly recommend going to Ephesians, this incredible doctrine, this height of the doctrine of the word, and just spending time in there. You don't have to go digging through lexicons and concordances. Just read the word and sit and think about it, who we are in Christ, who we are because of Christ and because of God's wonderful work. There was a line in that prayer that uh, Kevin Gigu said, we need to start valuing our lives the way God values it. And we need to see the cost of our lives, the import of our lives, the way that God did. And it cost him his son. God gave his son for us. So let's live our lives as if we value that same value. I'm going to close with prayer here. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus Christ our wonderful Lord and Savior. And and Lord, we don't want to forget you in our prayers. We know that you hear our prayers, that you are a part of our lives, that you are an active, dynamic Lord, directly involved in our lives, administering this body of Christ, working diligently with us. We thank you for that. So we come before you, the dynamic duel, our wonderful God and Father and his Son, our Lord. And we thank you for these awesome accomplishments we, we look back at the history, his story, what you did through the, the whole history of mankind to get us to this point, to this age of grace. And we just ask that you give us opportunities to share this wonderful story, to rescue those, to throw them a lifeline as somebody did for us. You know, just, just to speak the name of Jesus Christ, to get really specific. And yes, you know, maybe uh, polarizing in our speech. But give us give us the strength to do that. And Lord, you know, if there are areas in our lives where we fear, where we sin, where we we're just not walking according to your word, uh, uncover that and and help us to have the meekness and the humility to just deal with it. And Lord, we know that if you reveal to us stuff like this, you will give us the strength to be delivered from it. I think of that verse where it says that you will not have us tempted where above what we are able, but will always give us a way to escape. So we know that there are men and women out there, Father, that are dealing with such things, and we ask you to strengthen them. And as we deal in our lives with these things where we are working to overcome the effects of the adversary in our lives and in our hearts and in our consciences, that you just... Just give us the strength to obliterate, to mortify the works of the flesh, to count them as dead, and to walk in the great, wonderful union that we have with you, Lord Jesus, and in the wonderful and great sonship that you have given us, Father. We thank you for this in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Lord. And the people said, Amen. 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 Everything will fade, everything will fade, the heavens and the earth. Pass away, but you will.